Um, today is the second in a series of talks on big issues. And uh, last week we looked at the beginning of life, and today we're going to look at the end of life, particularly some of the discussion around euthanasia and assisted dying. Um, I'm aiming to speak for about 30 minutes or so, uh, which may seem like a long time for some of you. Um, but in that time, we're not possibly going to be able to cover every aspect of this topic. So do stay around for the Q&A session afterwards. Um, do uh, chat to one another as well. Even more so than last week, um, this is an issue that has direct relevance to every single one of us. Uh, for some, those personal experiences are going to be very uh, significant. Uh, they'll carry lots of sadness and grief. So please forgive me if unintentionally or through uh, my clumsiness, I don't handle these matters as sensitively as I should. Uh, but before uh, we go on, let's, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a great God who loves us. Father, we thank you that in your son Jesus, you hold out the hope of eternal life. And as we uh, consider these issues today, help me to speak uh, wisely and gently. And we pray that through your word, you would speak to us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, I'll try and organize these slides. So um, this is Aurelia Browers. And in the weeks leading up to her death in the Netherlands, she used the black marker pen to cross off the days until she would die on a whiteboard at home. Uh, during those last weeks, she spent time with her loved ones. Uh, she did craft work. She rode around the town that she lived in uh, on her bike. Um, but she also visited the crematorium, the place that she had chosen for her own funeral service. And in her final uh, Facebook posting, a few hours before her death, she wrote, I'm getting ready for my trip now. Thank you so much for everything. I'm no longer available from now on. And on the 26th of January 2018, Aurelia lay down on her bed, surrounded by her friends, and she took the medicine prescribed by her doctor under the terms of the Termination of Life on Request and Suicide Act in Netherlands. She didn't have a terminal disease such as cancer. Rather, she suffered from severe anxiety, depression, an eating disorder, and psychosis. She'd spent some of her life as an inpatient in a psychiatry unit, as well as time in uh, prison for arson. Samuel Linares was an infant who swallowed a balloon at a birthday par party in 1988. He was only eight months old at the time. Uh, the balloon got trapped in his windpipe, it caused loss of oxygen to the brain, and he was admitted to a hospital in Chicago in a coma and placed on a ventilator. Eight months later, 16 months old at this stage, he was still on that ventilator, still in the hospital, although being planned to move to a long-term care unit. Shortly before the move, Samuel's parents visited him in hospital. His mother left the room while his father produced a gun and told the nurse to keep away. He then disconnected Samuel from the ventilator. He cradled him in his arms until he died. And when he was sure he was dead, he gave up his gun and surrendered to police. These are just two examples of euthanasia or assisted dying, and they are very, very hard to hear. But without them, I don't think we can consider this subject properly and respond as we should as Christians. I think it would be helpful to start with some uh, definitions 
um, but, but at the same time being aware that these definitions are often changing. And the definitions can vary slightly depending on who's wielding them. Uh, Thanos uh, was, uh, uh, Thanatos rather, was the personification of death in Greek mythology. Um, so for those of you that are Avengers fans, you can tell me afterwards why uh, Thanos is an appropriate name for the arch-villain uh, in the Infinity War movies. You uh, in Greek means good, and so euthanasia literally means a good death or an easy death. And up until a few centuries ago, um, that is how the term would have been used. But the term euthanasia now is used almost exclusively uh, for the context of actively bringing about someone's death. Um, but in recent times, there's been a move to create uh, sort of subcategories within that, um, often as a result of advocates of changes in the law, choosing to use terms that are less divisive and more appealing to the public, the media, and lawmakers. So here are some definitions, but they're not uh, exhaustive. Uh, euthanasia, or mercy killing, as often advocates would choose to, to, to use, uh, means to intentionally kill either directly um, or by omission to end a person's life whose life is not felt to be worth living. Now that can be voluntary if it's requested by the individual or involuntary, for example, in the case of uh, a patient perhaps in a, in a coma. Suicide is, of course, an act to intentionally bring about one's own death and assisted suicide is an action to assist a person who requests help in committing suicide. Many would argue that assisted dying is really the same term, but advocates of this term would usually say that this is to assist terminally ill patients who are mentally competent and request help to die. For the reasons I've outlined above, uh, legally sanctioned assisted suicide or assisted dying is much more widespread in the world than euthanasia. Uh, it's been legal in Switzerland since 1942, and assisted dying for the terminally ill is now legal in about 10 states in the US, as well as Canada, meaning that 100 million people in North America have access to assisted dying. Uptake in the states uh, still remains relatively low. Um, California only introduced the law in 2016, so um, interpret these figures with a degree of caution. Um, there are about 40 million people who live in California, and in 2017, um, causes of all deaths uh, led to, to the deaths of um, nearly 270,000 people. So that's, that's a, a normal year in California. In 2018, so that's two years after the law was changed, 452 prescriptions for lethal medicines were prescribed and 337 deaths uh, were, were recorded as being a result of taking lethal prescriptions. That's not to say that um, there, there were failures, rather that there are more prescriptions um, uh, than people who actually go through um, with, this, with, uh, with taking them. In the Netherlands, however, euthanasia was decriminalized in 1973, um, although the criteria were formalized uh, through the 80s. But in 2002, uh, the Netherlands fact, uh, uh, did legalize euthanasia uh, and assisted suicide. And they did that through the Termination of Life on Request and Assisted Suicide Act. And that's how uh, Aurelia Browers um, was able to take her own life. Uh, to meet the criteria for euthanasia, various criteria uh, need to be met. Um, in, in the Netherlands, you need to prove that your suffering is unbearable, that there's no prospect of improvement, um, and that the decision is made persistently and voluntarily by someone who has the mental capacity to do so. Uh, in law at the moment, um, it's illegal 
uh, for children under the age of 12 to be euthanized. Up until the age of 16, your parents need to be involved in that decision. But as some of you will have seen, the government are now approving plans to extend uh, euthanasia for children under the age of 12 if terminally ill. And in contrast to the states, uh, where uptake is relatively low, um, euthanasia is much more widespread uh, in, in the Netherlands. So now about one in 20 of all deaths in the Netherlands uh, is through either euthanasia or assisted dying. And you'll see from these graphs, that blue graph at the top is uh, cases, uh, deaths, uh, per th uh, sort of cases of euthanasia or assisted dying uh, per, per thousand people. And there's been about two and a half fold increase over the last 10 years uh, in people taking up that option in the Netherlands. However, with the exception of suicide, all of these uh, categories are illegal under British law. Uh, euthanasia and assisted dying are considered either as manslaughter or murder, depending on the circumstances. Indeed, up until 1961 in the UK, suicide was illegal in most of the UK. And those uh, that tried and failed to commit suicide could technically be uh, prosecuted. Quite rightly, I believe, there was a desire to focus on trying to actively intervene and help such individuals before they got uh, to that stage. And so uh, many, including the church, uh, decided it was time uh, to no longer um, uh, consider suicide as a crime. So uh, the 1961 su Suicide Act was passed to decriminalize suicide, but at the same time, it created a new offense of assisting, aiding, or abetting suicide, which carries a maximum penalty of 14 years. So the question is, given that the rest of the world cha is changing, is there a desire to see the law changed in the UK? Well, surveys in recent years would suggest that around 80% of people when surveyed in the UK consistently say they would support a change in the law to give the right to die to those with a terminal illness and less than six months to live. Uh, those figures drop slightly when you start to think about other categories, but there are still probably a majority of pe people suggesting that we should be offering assisted dying for non-terminal illnesses, such as early Alzheimer's disease, when individuals are still felt to have capacity. If you ask doctors, that the, the figures are lower. Just last week, the British Medical Association published a survey. Um, it's worth noting that only 20% of members responded to that. And about 50% of people said they were personally supportive of a change in the law uh, for those that met those sort of criteria, so six months to live with a terminal illness. 39% said they would personally oppose it, and the remainder were undecided. Uh, slightly sort of lower numbers would actually want to be either involved um, uh, if they were, uh, even if they were supportive of the law, um, and the numbers dropped further when you start to think about a more liberal uh, approach such as um, what's offered in the Netherlands and Belgium. The year before, the Royal College of Physicians um, undertook a similar survey, and if you look at the subset of results there, the palliative care uh, doctors, so those are people actively involved uh, in caring for people as they die, uh, had very different views. 85% of those opposed a change in the law, and 10% were in favour. So are our laws outdated? That's, that's what some would have us believe. Um, in recent years, there have been several attempts through a variety of mechanisms to change the law that makes it an offence to assist someone's suicide. 
Uh, Lord Trevern in the House of Lords said, um, when the law is absurd, you must change the law. So it's argued that as things stand, uh, it, the law creates a rather un uh, unique situation. So when a person um, assists someone to commit suicide, the individual committing suicide is not committing a crime, but the person assisting them is. So if I organise a trip for a relative to take them to a Dignitas clinic in Switzerland, uh, where assisted suicide is legal, if I book the flights, if I take them to the airport, if I deliver them to the clinic, um, I could be prosecuted on my return uh, and receive a prison sentence of up to 14 years. More importantly, people would argue that this is an affront to people's autonomy. Uh, they argue that it's cruel and unfair for a state to override an individual's autonomy to decide when they should be allowed to die, and in particular to deny them that when they're facing the pain and indignity of a terminal illness is simply inhumane. John Stuart Mill, one of the fathers of modern liberalism, said, over himself and his body and mind, the individual is sovereign. In 2002, Diane Pretty, um, on the slide behind, uh, was dying of motor neuron disease. Uh, she took the British, court, uh, British government to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, she argued that not being able to die uh, in dignity violated her human rights. She also argued that as she was not going to be in a position to take her own life, she wanted an assurance that her husband could help her and um, be, be free from prosecution. Her claim was rejected and in response to the judgment, Diane Pretty said that the law has taken all my rights away. But the other uh, strand of uh, the argument for a change in the law is dignity and compassion. Diane Pretty, like countless other campaigners in this cause, have claimed the banner of dignity, stating that refusing her the right to die violated her right to die in dignity. Now ask any neurologist whether they would choose to have motor neuron disease and you will only get one answer. For most individuals, the disease will progress relentlessly, leading to death over about two to three years on average. Ultimately, patients are often paralyzed, so they're bedridden. They may be unable to speak, unable to swallow, and so they may need to have a feeding tube put through their stomach to give them water and nutrition. And there's progressive breathlessness and respiratory failure as the muscles of breathing waste away. On face value, it doesn't chime with our views of dignity. And it's not by chance that advocacy groups for euthanasia and assisted dying call themselves Dignity and Dying, or set up clinics called Dignitas Clinics. They've claimed the word dignity for their cause. On the face of it, the picture of an individual completely dependent on others to undertake all of their basic needs doesn't seem very dignified. But is it right to say that such a life lacks dignity or is meaningless? Uh, I caution, cautiously mentioned Stephen Hawking at this stage. He's probably the most famous person, certainly in Britain, to have lived with motor neuron disease. He's also got probably the most unusual form of motor neuron disease you can have. But nevertheless, towards the end of his life, while still working, Stephen Hawking fulfilled all of those features I described above. And yet I don't sp suppose that you or I would suggest that he lacked dignity. To use dignity in the way that campaigners for assisted dying and euthanasia do is most certainly at odds, <coughs> at least with the historical meaning, and we'll consider the biblical meaning later. Historically, when we use the word dignity precisely, we're talking of an inherent characteristic of human beings that doesn't depend on our status, actions, or capacity. 
Instead, I would suggest when individuals claim a right for dignity or compassion, what they're really expressing is a fear of the prospect of both death and perhaps more tangibly, the suffering that may precede that. In the face of the prospect of suffering, there is a desire for a compassionate response to the sufferer. And campaigners argue that to allow people to needlessly suffer and to deny them the opportunities to end their life is cruel and unnecessary. So what about a biblical response? Um, We've considered briefly the case for assisted dying and euthanasia, but what should our biblical Christian response to be? What about the argument of autonomy? Tom touched on uh, on some of this uh, last week, but our desire to do as we please um, has certainly come into sharp relief during this period of COVID. Uh, We live in in a world where governments are trying to seek to limit our autonomy in order to do what they feel is best for the whole population. And many would argue that they feel very uncomfortable with that. But as we saw last week, as Christians, we shouldn't hold to the idea that we are autonomous individuals here by accident, with no purpose in life other than to dance to whatever tune the atoms we're made of determine. Now, instead, we've been created and designed by a loving creator. Tom took us to Psalm 139 last week, where the psalmist praises God for knitting him together in his mother's womb. Not only are we created by God, but God has bestowed his love upon us. This creation and love for us means we do have dignity, value, or worth, regardless of our function, our capabilities, and regardless of the value that either we or others may attribute to ourselves. And we were also designed for relationship with God and an ongoing dependence upon him. As Paul was revealing this God, uh, the God of the Bible to the Athenians in, in Acts 17, in verses 24 to 25, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Anita uh, reminds us of Hannah's prayer in, in 1 Samuel earlier, chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. And as God himself said in Deuteronomy 32, 39, there is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. Our lives are not our own. And so whilst God has given us great freedom, we're neither free to take our own lives nor those of others. This desire for autonomy is at the heart of sin. In the Garden of Eden, it was our desire for autonomy that led us to choose to ignore God's good rule and pursue our own desires. How ironic, then, that the autonomy those in favour of assisted dying crave is the very thing that introduced death into the world. Furthermore, just as we're not independent of God, neither are we independent of one another. A few weeks ago in our small groups, some of us were looking at the Trinity, that idea that God is three persons in one being, an eternal relationship with a mutual dependence on one another. And in the same way we are created in his image, we're not only dependent on him, but also one another. Indeed, this fact is used by both advocates and opponents of assisted suicide and euthanasia. Uh, In his article, Death on Demand, Has Euthanasia Gone Too Far?, uh, Christopher de Belive recounts the story of a 38-year-old, forgive me for my poor Dutch 
uh, pronunciation. Iuko de Guja, whose euthanasia was one of the first high-profile cases involving a young person suffering from mental illness. And in response to Ilko's death, many wrote letters of support to his parents. But Delai uh, writes, the one that made the biggest impression on his parents came from a woman whose daughter had gone out one day, taking the empty bottles to the store and walked in front of a train. She envied us, Ilko's mother told me, because she didn't know why her daughter had done it. She said, you were able to ask Ilko every question you had. That's a picture of Ilko. I only have questions. Tabalai goes on to say, privately, even surreptitiously undertaken, suicide leaves behind shattered lives. Even when it goes according to plan, someone finds a body. That openly discussed euthanasia can cushion or even obviate that much of this hurt is something I hadn't really considered. And he goes on to reflect that whatever we think, perhaps, about the euthanizing of a healthy young man in contrast uh, to the woman's daughter who walked in front of the train, Ilko's death did not leave behind a traumatized train driver or the unanswered questions of her mother. But the writer explores this and goes on to describe the case of Mark Bell's mother, Marika. When the law was changed in 2002, legalizing euthanasia, it was no longer uh, required by law to consult uh, with an individual's family. Uh, and there were good reasons for that um, on the account of uh, autonomy of the individual, the doctor-patient relationship, um, and not least to protect vulnerable people from unscrupulous relatives. In the spring of 2018, Mark Veld began to suspect that his mother was thinking of undergoing euthanasia. And on the 9th of June, the doctor phoned him and said, I'm sorry, your mother passed away half an hour ago. Mark Veld never had the opportunity to explain to her doctor why, in his view, her suffering was neither unbearable nor impossible to alleviate. And at her funeral, in her hands as she was buried, was a letter from her son, Mark, uh, detailing his unhappiness, resentment, and guilt. Mark explains that he would have been content with her decision should, had she had terminal cancer with months to live. But beneath his, uh, his anger lies the inconsolable sadness of a son who blames himself for not doing more. De Belig writes that whilst Marika's euthanasia was carried out according to the law and will raise no alarms in the review board, it was also carried out without regard to her relatedness to other human beings. We talked earlier about the case of Diane Pretty, suffering with motor neurone disease, who wanted a change in the law so that she might choose to die when she felt the time was right. Her husband, Brian, Brian Pretty, who was seemingly fully supportive of her, said this when asked about his view on the ruling. I'm pleased on one respect because it means I have my wife here for a bit longer, but I'm very sad because her choice of when to die has been taken away from her. Our actions clearly affect those close to us, but it's also not too hard to imagine that they might also have an effect on society in general. Baroness Finlay, a professor of palliative medicine and crossbench peer said, we should not forget that laws are more than just regulatory instruments. They also send powerful messages. An assisted dying law sends the subliminal message, however unintended by legislators, that if we're terminally ill, taking our own lives is something we should consider. Well, finally, what about the fear of death and dying? As Woody Allen famously said, 
I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I argued earlier that when those in favour of the right to die talk of dignity, I believe the term is used incorrectly. Rather, I think it largely represents a fear of the process of dying and the physical and emotional pain. And those are also fears that don't just affect the dying, but also those watching and left behind, as we saw in the actions of the father of Samuel Linares, the 60-month-old boy left with severe brain damage after swallowing a balloon at the party. I don't say this to devalue their feelings, on the contrary, but surely the clearer we are in identifying the problem, the more likely we are to find the solution. And in this debate, I think it's where, as Christians, we also need to admit that sometimes these fears are very real for us. Now, at this stage, I'll briefly just touch on palliative care and hospices. Um, the palliative care movement really arose out of the hospice movement, um, and that was founded by Dame Cicely Saunders, the British physician and Christian, who said, you matter because you are you, and you matter to the end of your life. We will do all we can, not only to help you die peacefully, but also to live until you die. Uh, the work of those in palliative medicine and hospices is invaluable. And it means that the very vast majority of patients will have their physical symptoms well managed. Those on both sides of the argument of this debate will profess that good palliative care and hospices should be available. Uh, and many in favor of assisted dying try to argue that where this is legalized, the provision of such services has been enhanced. But we won't have time to look at that today. Suffice to say, if as Christians we're going to argue for the inherent dignity of life created in God's image, we must live that out practically. Whether that be the care of someone in the late stages of a terminal condition, um, or those living with chronic diseases such as dementia, uh, dementia or mental health disorders, uh, or a child with severe disabilities. This is hard, sometimes heart and body breaking work but it's also worthy, loving, and noble work uh, to give ourselves to both directly uh, in a, and in our support of others. But ultimately, none of this, good as it is, really provides the solution to the inevitability of death and the suffering that comes with it. Physical control of our symptoms is welcome, but it won't necessarily dilute the fear of what lies beyond the grave or the grief that comes from losing those that we love. As the Bible teaches, and as we saw last week, our sin, our desire for autonomy, rather than setting us free, has left us under the power of sin and death. Our reading from John 11 earlier is the story of a family touched by death. We don't know much about the death of Lazarus, except to say that it was the consequence uh, of an illness. We don't know how he viewed uh, his impending death, whether he was in physical pain. Uh, but we do know that he lives in a time when there was no modern medicine, uh, no palliative care, no hospices. What is clear from the text is that his illness was sufficiently severe for Martha to send word to Jesus asking him to come. For this family, their only hope was Jesus. And we see from the responses of Martha and Mary and the mourners that their hope was uh, very real. They were convinced that Lazarus would live if Jesus would just come. What's more, their call is not a public appeal with a link to a Just Giving page, but a request from the close personal friends of Jesus. Four times, John explicitly speaks of the love between Jesus and this family. 
Surely Jesus will answer the call. John tells us in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Would that be right? When Jesus, the great healer, hears that the one he loves is unwell, he doesn't get up and go, but he stays where he is. Perhaps it's no wonder then that when he does go and Lazarus is well and truly dead, Martha says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But still she has some hope. She knows that God can still perform a miracle. I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. When Jesus tells her that her brother will rise again, Martha responds by acknowledging that God will raise some to life on that resurrection day in the future. But I can't help feel that there's a sense that whilst this truth offers some comfort, it still leaves her heartbroken. What she wants is her brother back. She wants an end to the rawness and the numbness that has replaced the comfort and warmth that his relationship provided. She wants for sleep to fill the sleepless nights. She wants life and its goodness as it was. A life that she seems to know only God can give. What does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. What is Jesus saying to her? You are right, Martha. Only God can give life. If you want the life that God gives Martha, then come to me. I am life. I am God who gives life. I give life to those that die, a promise of life to those trusting in Jesus beyond the grave. And I give life before death, the promise of a relationship with God that death cannot break. In the face of death and loss, Martha faces, <clears throat> she looks for God, and Jesus redirects her gaze towards him to see that he is God and that the life she's looking for is found in him. Do you believe this, Martha, says Jesus? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. The story reminds us that with, <clears throat> uh, despite this wonderful promise of life, it doesn't mean that there's no sorrow. The grief of Mary and Martha will be our grief. The darkness of death is something that we're all too aware of. For some, the temptation will be to do all we can to retreat from this, to take matters into our own hands and sometime, somehow sanitize death. But as we've seen here, often in our darkest times, God has something wonderful to teach us. And rather than retreating from our sorrow, Jesus joins us in it as he weeps with Mary. Later, knowing what was to come, he prays to his father that if there is another way, that he may be spared the suffering of the cross and the death to come, uh, then, then let God's will be done. But he says, yet, yet not my will, Father, but yours be done. Jesus could have at any moment chosen to, uh, chosen to withdraw, to pursue a different way, but instead he chose the way that would see him wrongfully arrested, beaten, humiliated, deserted by his friends, before being nailed to a cross at the hands of those that he had created. Is this dignity? 
most certainly not in the eyes of the world. But in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Gethsemane, he says, it is the hour when he and the Father are glorified and life is bought for all those that would believe. Well, in a moment, we're going to pray. But before we do, can I just ask that if any of these things are uh, sort of particular issues for you, uh, maybe it's stirred up uh, something that you've been struggling with, can I just encourage you to share that with someone? Uh, In my day-to-day work as a doctor and in reading around this subject, I'm ever more conscious of how many are struggling with some of these issues. Uh, In particular, anxiety and depression can so easily take a grip of people's lives and leave people feeling hopeless. So I want to say very clearly that it is entirely natural for Christians to experience fear around death and dying. It's entirely natural for Christians to suffer with mental health uh, issues. There is certainly no shame to be struggling with these things, or to even sometimes wonder whether it might not be better if you didn't wake up in the morning, or perhaps plan how you might take matters into your own hands. If you are feeling like that, can I encourage you to speak to someone? Um, If whoever you choose is not sympathetic, they are the wrong person, and you do need to find someone else. So do get medical help to speak to your GP, but it might be really helpful to speak to a family member, uh, a close friend, uh, maybe someone on the staff team here, someone in your small group. Um, There are other organizations as well, um, such as Samaritans or Mind, that you can speak to if you want to be slightly more anonymous. But please don't keep these things to yourself. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in Jesus we have a saviour who offers us death both now and beyond the grave. We thank you that we have one who has suffered as we will suffer, and more so, who can sympathise sympathize with us and meets us in our griefs and sorrows and takes them from us. Father, may we trust in Jesus and his death, and may we hold that out to the world around us. We ask this in your name. Amen.